Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. Well, this week we continue our conversation with Donald L. Miller, author of Masters of the Air, which has been turned into a miniseries produced by Hanks and Spielberg. And, uh, you know, in this conversation takes a number of different arcs. And in this one, we're going to speak a little bit to actually a lot to the importance of oral histories in how he develops his narrative for his writing, which I think is what makes him, in my view, one of the more exceptional history writers on the planet, quite frankly. That and a variety of other topics. So uh, ah, listen in and check it out and enjoy the show. So time, time is ever on their minds in a way. We have to put ourselves, I think, in all history um, behind the eyes of the people who make the decisions at the point that they make the decisions as obvious as that sounds. Otherwise, everything is deterministic. If you write a history of World War II and you make it known that, you know, everybody knows the Allies win and your idea is to show how they won, well, frankly, they could have lost. So it's kind of a false history if you're doing it chronologically because for long periods of time, especially in the air war, they are losing. So better to do it day to day, year to year, as an unfolding drama, because we don't know ourselves what's going to happen in the next five minutes. And they didn't either. And we have to see the war as they saw it. Um, and what seems so often to be foolish um, made some sense at the time. So I always try to keep that in mind. The um, I call it the fallacy of hindsight, yes. uh, of relying too much on hindsight. You know, and 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 is it is it fair to say, Donald, that because you do use oral histories from that period exhaustively in your book, that that keeps you from being yeah that that, that kind of allows you to capture that zeitgeist better as opposed to doing. I think so. Letters letters are even better. Ah, um, because okay. le letters are written at the time. And, um, you know, um, say Sledge's letters from Okinawa or something like that. I mean, there you have the immediacy. I find that with the Civil War, especially. Um, Civil War soldiers were letter writers, much more than World War II soldiers. And, but the further away they write about the war and they're, account of the war becomes a memoir uh, from the distance of 30 years, say. Um, like grants, for example. You can capture a lot through perspective, um, which hindsight does give you, but you can lose a lot of immediacy and uh, of situ situations at the time. I, I hadn't even thought about how important letters are. We 
Ryan, you and I don't really dig into to letters. Occasionally, um, we'll have some letters shared with us from people we interviewed, but it's relatively rare. They're they're deeply personal. Usually, people don't want to share those or they don't want to you know make make them available to us. The oral histories are important. Getting those accounts. But uh, but I thought it was really interesting to hear him say that. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert, this is the third time I think he's mentioned it so far in the interview. His next book's going to be about the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, one thing I was going to jump in and add here, um, you know, my I, as I mentioned before, my wife's grandfather, uh, Oscar Solis, was in the 44th Combat Engineers. He fought in the Battle of Bulge and was a POW. Well, when he passed away in the mid-90s, um, we, uh, Aaron and I inherited a lot of his war memorabilia. Um, some of the, uh, uh, German belt buckles that he came home with a lot of stuff like that, but also all of the letters that he wrote home to his wife. And there are literally, gosh, hundreds Ah. of these letters in their original envelopes from overseas and one of the things that was kind of frustrating was how little military information yeah. was in them because they were they were censored, yep. you know? And so all he could talk about was basic things that were not military-oriented or what's going on with her, yep. with his wife, what's going on back home. Can you tell me about this, that, and the other? And so it's great, the immediacy of like what, like what Donald Miller talks about um, – would be awesome if he could talk about his true feelings for what he's worried about. You know, Ryan, you 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 nailed on. I, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely correct. The books that I read, the people we speak to, they almost not only would certain elements of what um, they were experiencing be censored, but a lot of them deliberately didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to worry the people back home. They didn't want to describe how terrible the conditions yes. were. So you, you're you right. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because mm-hmm, you got mm-hmm. these letters, which is like, hey, that was penned at that moment on that date that you can see it. But oftentimes what the soldiers wanted was just the mundane news back home, right? They wanted to feel that connection. Escape. They escaped from it. And they didn't. So that's a that's a very excellent point because, yeah. So, and the, well, the other yeah. thing I was going to say is it seems to me like probably the more important document to have, if it exists, would be a, a diary. Ah, yes. Because because then it's not shared with the spouse or the mom and the dad. It's it's their own personal thoughts and concerns and stuff, and, and, So, which was rare to have a diary. And, and, but when they did, they were impactful. Eugene Sledge. His book was written from a diary that he kept on the side of a Bible. Absolutely. Leo Westerholm, someone we interviewed, a 101st Airborne Trooper who was taken prisoner, he would keep a diary in a POW camp on the back of suit cam labels. So I, I think you're— Eldon Ross. Eldon Ross. Eldon Ross kept it out. Yeah. yeah. He kept a diary also. I, so I, I think you're right. I feel like the diary is probably maybe the gold standard for trying to get to that moment probably followed by a letter if it's descriptive enough. And then you have your oral Mm -hmm. histories. And after that, everything is just kind of secondhand information as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, and that's why I I like um, like movies like or books like The Longest Day, you know, Cornelius Ryan. um, That was only 20 years after D-Day that 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 he gathered all those oral histories and that that collection is a very important collection but these guys it was only 20 years after the fact i mean you know now when we speak to these guys and even when we were interviewing the world war ii vets in their heyday back in you know 2010 um in our heyday right. <laughs> um 
and not <laughs> theirs. Uh, you know, they were still thinking back 70 years, yep. you yep. know? Um, so it was, a memoir. you know, water under the bridge. It was a memoir, yeah. right? It, it didn't have the immediacy and some of the emotion. There was still a lot of emotion with these guys, but perhaps not if you had interviewed them a year or two after the war. You mentioned The Longest yeah. Day, a movie that Donald Miller mentioned a couple of times in the interview once already was 12 O'Clock High, which was uh, uh, directed by a guy named Wiley. And uh, he flew bomber missions. He went over there, not just document the air war, but he felt like in order to really experience the air war, mm. he needed to to fly these missions. And he was the one who documented the Memphis Bell. All that footage that you oh, see wow. from the Memphis Bell yes. came from him and, and several others, including the famous plane from the 100th Bomb Group called Hell's Angels, which was the name of the plane and ultimately become uh, it would be it would be used by these World War II veterans who came home, and they were maladjusted, and they started a biker gang, and they named it after a plane in the 100th Bomb Group called the Hell's Angels. All this stuff is linked together, but but it was um it was it it's it's really interesting to hear him talk about his primary sources and how he weights them and what the pros and cons to each one of those. Uh, of what those are. So at any rate, I mean, this, this is really cool to get inside the mind of an author that is uh, yeah. celebrated New York Times bestselling author. I mean, this is right up there with Ambrose and McCulloch and all those guys. Well, that was one of the things I just wanted to say, and I could probably say it at the end just as easily. But what I found interesting about speaking with Donald Miller, and I, I think I brought it up at one point in the conversation was you strike me more as a writer. Yeah perhaps than a than than just a historian you seem like you, you you're kind of 50 50 yeah. there you know which he is a writer but he really approaches it from the standpoint of how do i get the reader to turn the next page you know, like he mentioned so that. that's coming up in two clips and and that's okay. an no Sorry. no it's it's We'll yeah. call it foreshadowing, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's also it's also called stealing no, your thunder. No, 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 so. it's not. <laughs> and so the, the, now okay. the next clip we're going to get kind of back into the war, specifically something um, uh, called Operation Crossbow. It, this is a fairly long clip, but we're going to dive back into some of the elements of the war that he documented in the book. Like um, Albert Speer. Um, kind of making fun, mocking in his autobiography, the American, uh, what he calls decision, it wasn't a decision, but I'll explain that in a second. After Regensburg and Schweinfurt, he said, if the Americans and the Brits had gone back and pounded those targets incessantly throughout late August and into September, they might have driven us out of the war. Mm. But what he doesn't realize is we didn't have, you know, um, we didn't have the power to do that. We didn't have the planes and we didn't have the pilots. We didn't have the crews. Um, it was a sh It was a very small air force at the time. I mean, you couldn't mount thousand mission bombers, thousand mission raids and things like that. And it was why Aker was against Regensburg Schweinfurt. He just didn't think we were ready to take a beating where you could lose up to a third, which is what they did, you lose up to a third of your force. And then you're knocked out for about three or four weeks in terms of doing some massive bombing. 
would say finding it back to Stuttgart and then into Marienburg and places like that in October. But um, yeah, you have to see it from the perspective of the of the people who are uh, who are making the decisions. Yeah. Were those Schweinfurt raid? <clears throat> was that Schweinfurt raid though? Before we had fighter escorts, where we were, it, and therefore absolutely we heavier, yeah. much heavier. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, Edgar, Edgar, when you read his letters and stuff, he's not that. He's irritatingly um, oblivious, not oblivious, but. <laughs> Uh, can, can I add something really quick, Donald? Yeah. I think maybe the word you're looking for, because I was going to bring this up before Ryan's question as well. It feels like the bomber mafia had these huge blind spots. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they couldn't was, see that they needed these things. Typical doctrinaires, you know? I mean, yeah. the, way, the way politics has become doctrinaire today, but there's yeah. no debate about it. And uh, it's this way or that way. And uh, they were so invested in that. And Arnold was so afraid of getting folded up into the RAF and not getting what he wanted in a separate air force after the war. Um, they were crazy about that. Um, they just, boy. They, I, mean, um, like, I mean, just uh, to me, some of the things that you reinforced in the book with the bomber mafia mentality of precise strikes during the day on targets that would cripple the military is they they seem to always have this blind spot where they felt like the bombers didn't need escorts and they did and they it it just seemed like they had an over uh, abundance of optimism on what they thought the capabilities actually were and then they had to deal with the weather and it and then you write that it prevented them from taking on targets that really mattered until pretty late in the war i mean i thought you did a really good job of that there were times when you would talk about the bomber mafia philosophy that prevented us from really facing reality. And as a reader, I was getting frustrated. I was yelling at the book. I was like, come on guys, can't you see you need a long range fighter? Yeah. I mean, was that, was that deliberate when you were putting it in there? Do you feel that frustration as well? When you, I did when you read it. these notes? I did feel it. And um, there were a number of air force officers inside the war. Um, when everything kind of broke down at San Nazar and places like that, and they, they're just not able to knock out those subpens. I mean, all you have to do is visit San Nazar today and see the, you know, the reinforced concrete. If the Germans did anything well, it was reinforced concrete. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. In fact, when we went when we went to San Nazar with a bunch of people. Um, I talked to the guy and I said a couple things. One, there's no visitors here. He said, no, only the Germans come. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, secondly, I, I said, what's, I said, what's second? He said, they marvel at the concrete. They think this is great. <laughs> we did a hell of it. It's like, he said, for some of them, it's like, especially the engineers, we won the war. They couldn't knock this place out. You know, yeah. with the, the Atlantic wall, which we never really defeated. <laughs> Yeah. Instead of instead of, you know, like you write in the book, going after things like oil and transportation and sort of things that that were soft spots for them. I mean, I had a chance to listen to you um, share some of your experiences on the Veterans Breakfast Club about three or four weeks ago. And I was the guy that asked the question about the oil plan. Why did it oh. take so long? And I want to I want to add something to that really quick, Donald. 
I had not read Masters of the Air when I asked that question. Mm-hmm. And when I asked you that question, you were kind of like, you literally said, well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And now that I've read your book, I understand there was no single answer for why that didn't happen. It was way more complex than that. Yeah, it is. It's the complexity of it that that, that, that comes that comes across, you know. And there's all sorts of cross currents that are operating on these air commanders. I mean, right after D-Day, you know, they, they're forced into what, as you guys know, is called crossbow. Mm-hmm. Well, because, you know, England's getting hammered with V1s and V2, eventually V2, V1s, V2s. And so something had to be done about that. And so just as Spots finds what he thinks is the soft spot, the Achilles heel, He's got to divert, you know, would be his word, a lot of force to these um, to these rocket sites. And Churchill's saying, my God, you know, of course you got to do that. You know, look what they're doing to, to our cities. And what if they develop this gigantic New York rocket and things like that? I mean, so what if they have an atomic bomb program, which we didn't know then? We don't know that until we get to Cologne and send interrogators across the border and get into chemical labs and facilities that you know that they were about nine to ten months behind us at least in the atomic program and their absence of heavy water and whatnot nothing ryan and i mean nothing frustrated the bomber the bomber mafia more than having to build up forces and then divert them to other things that weren't part of their strategic bombing campaign. And through the course of the book, here's a short list I just wrote down just from memory of some of the the, the, the places or things that the bombers were divert, diverted towards that just drove Spatz nuts. Because the people like Spatz, Aker, others, they literally felt like, Hap Arnold, they felt like, you, you can't make this up, please read the book. When they brought their bombers over in 42... They felt like they could bomb Germany to the point where there would be no land invasion, where they would just surrender because they were bombed wow. to oblivion. Now, we have learned that, you know, you, you almost always have, you always have to have men on the ground holding it, that you can't just bomb a country sure. to surrender. But at the time, this was part of their grand strategy. This was the thing that they were, they were really, you know, passionate about, zealots about. So here's some of the things that they were asked to do that they did not like, that they felt like was a diversion. One, The first thing was bombing the submarine pens in late 42, early 43, because of the war in the Atlantic. The problem was the concrete was so thick that our bombs would literally bounce off the concrete. It, it, it did nothing to prevent any of the submarines from being repaired and sent back out. The other one, so they ended up having to use the blockbuster the, bombs, those the grand slams and stuff like ab, that. They did later in the war, yeah. But at this point, especially at Pina Moon, yeah, but this is but yeah, at this sorry. point in the war, no worries. And in, in forty two, forty three, yeah. we didn't have that technology, and they and they felt like it was kind of a wasted effort. And in hindsight, it it can it is. The other thing that drove them crazy is during the invasion of North Africa and Sicily, they took pieces of the Eighth Air Force and created a new one down there called the Fifteenth. That that made them. It drove them crazy. And then during D-Day, 
when for a period of time, all of the 8th Air Force was given to Eisenhower for supporting the ground troops. And SPATs and the 8th Air Force felt like, that's ridiculous. We can better support the ground troops by bombing factories. I would argue that they were wrong. But that, that just, that's just how zealot they, they were about it. And then the most recent one that he just mentions is Crossbow. Crossbow is the direction of bombers towards these V-1 and V-2 rocket launching sites in northern Europe. And this was one where I kind of felt like, you know, do you really want to divert bombers from that at this point in the war? This would have been, you know, right after D-Day 1944. And um, I kind of felt like, well, maybe Spatz was right on this until I read this this section in the book about Crossbow. And I started realizing, holy crap, that was a bigger problem than I thought. So the V-2 rocket was basically a, a buzz bomb. It's basically like a Tomahawk cruise missile, but a lot more primitive. It flew low at about 400 miles per hour, and they would arrive in droves. And I'm going to read directly from the book. Quote, Hitler never aimed his flying bombs at invasion embarkation ports, perhaps because of their known inaccuracy. Yeah. But just as importantly, because of his deep obsession with retaliation bombing. So the British were guilty of retaliation bombing, and so were, so were the Germans. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You're in Britain, you're getting bombed by German planes, you want to give as much as you got. And it's really easy for the Americans to roll in there with this holier-than-thou attitude of, no, we're, we're going to spare civilians or we're going to focus on strategic bombing. But you know what? How would that change if our cities were getting bombed? Yeah, you'd want your pound of flesh, so to speak. I would. As a citizen, I'd be like, I think, you know, they just bombed Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I grew up. Um, I think we need to go over there and bomb the crap out of them, too. So this retaliation bombing that the Brits used and and then the Germans actually hindered them in many ways. It created a blind spot, but I'll, I'll continue because this is the thing I did not know about the V2 bombs or the V1s as they were called. <sighs> Londoners, pensioners, and housewives were the targets. They would pay for the suffering of the Berliners. It was London that over 90% of the V1 fatalities would occur. I didn't know it was 90%. I knew it was London, but not that high continues traveling at a speed of 400 miles per hour and arriving in droves often in cloudy weather so they weren't limited by that the pilotless bombs were at first difficult to shoot down flying too low for the high guns stationed around london and too high for the low guns but swiftly improved british defenses were able to destroy over half of the 7488 buzz bombs as they become known in britain that reached southern england in the 80 days of the Nazi assault. So let's unpack those numbers. In 80 days, Germany launched 7,488 <laughs> of these. I did not know that it was 7,488. So if you, Okay, how many is that a day? So if Sorry. you do the math, that's about 50 per day. So you're in London, oh, and every wow. day for 80 days, for the better part of three months, you have 50 of these bombs. That's two an I, hour. That's two it's an hour. Cra- you would have saw them all the time. They would have been everywhere. So I, I was of the opinion when I was reading the book, hey, we need to divert forces for Operation Crossbow because of these buzz bomb sites. I was like, <laughs> come on, suck it up, Britain. You know, let's get the freaking uh, Allied grind fo- ground forces moving into these northern sites, which ultimately is what stopped the buzz bombs as we overran the sites, and just suck it up. And then I read that, and I'm like, Holy crap, I knew the buzz bombs were a problem, but dude, you're talking a couple of, I mean, 
every 15 or 20 minutes you're going to have one crashing on you? So how many casualties or fatalities were there from the buzz bombs? Do you know? I do know. And let me dig this up really quick. Over the course of the summer, over 18,000 people were injured and 6,184 were killed. The bombs fell so randomly that many Londoners refused to enter air raid shelters, reacting to the robot bombs with a nonchalance that bordered on idiocy. In the words of a local diarist, that, that's how he described it. Even the stands at the racetracks were packed to capacity. Racing enthusiasts, this Londoner wrote, have apparently decided that since death can find them anywhere in southern England these days, they just as soon be found laying a bet on a promising horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? It, it's, it's it, it, you know, it, that reminds me a little bit about the COVID thing yeah. where, you know, you're like, well, look, uh, I'm just going to live my life, you know, I mean, I, you know, and, and I can see why if you were in that, in that era where it's a random thing, it's random yep. that, that you'd be like, screw this. I'm just going to go out and live my life. If I die, I die. If there's a V one with my name on it, well then I guess there is. But the other thing is this 6,000 fatalities and 7,500 V one bombs. That is an interesting t- st- statistic because it's almost one to one. Eighteen thousand ca- uh, uh, people injured. Yeah. So yeah, right, I mean, right. Not to mention the injuries. What the book yeah. said is that the V two that scourge in eighty days killed more people than the Blitz earlier in the war using German bombers. So it was. I I, I went from thinking, oh, you have a few buzz bombs crashing in your cities. Wah, wah. Let, <laughs> let's let's divert. Let's let let's redivert all of our huge air force because of your little buzz bombs. And then I read this as like, oh, holy shit, that's a major yeah. major freaking problem. You, you might get a terse email from people over in England. Oh, I'm sure I will. This, we so. have <laughs> listeners over there. I'm not sure we will after this. No, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so it was to me I, I i it gave me a so maybe we'll get the listeners listeners back after i say this it gave me a much greater appreciation for you know when we think of of the the british and their stiff upper lip and how they handled the blitz you think 1940 1941 oh, yeah. and of course germany was still bombing these cities throughout the entire course of the war but what i didn't appreciate was how late in the war these vengeance weapons, how how terrible they were, and how much the English people, the Londoners, ninety percent of them, suffered from these. I I thought they were a nuisance. I didn't realize that they were a clear and present danger to the average like citizen of London until I read that. So, at the end of the day, yeah, we probably did need to bomb those sites and stop them from from falling on our fine citizens of London, England. Yep. <laughs> Our our allies, allies yes. our our fine allies, damn straight, our our cousins that speak a similar but different version of English. <laughs> um, so now we're going to go in the next clip, and this is going to be a gift to our le- to our to our readers. This is less about masters of the air and 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 specific events that occurred, and about his philosophy uh, in in writing in 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 how he puts these narratives together. But yeah, there's all these sorts of things that that come into the equation. Um, uh, the Air Force just gets started and all of a sudden well we're going in to North Africa and there goes 40% of the Air Force down down to North Africa Mm -hmm. Um, 
And there goes the whole dream of early strategic bombing. And uh, so they never really got the force structure that they wanted until early 44, when they started flying those um, gigantic, what Sonny Reston in the New York Times called flying artillery raids, when they could mount and, 1,300 bombers on a mission. And, and that, that's another element in your book that you, you address towards the end, that about the dominance, that we finally got that. I, I'd like to just read something from your book really quick, if you don't mind. Um <laughs> It talks to basically the dominance. You, you write that by the end of 1944, almost four-fifths of German towns and over 100,000 inhabitants had already been destroyed. Allied bombing operations had peaked. In the first four months of 1945, the American forces dropped over twice the tonnage of bombs on Germany that the RAF had dropped in all of 1943, in the first four months. But this, this to me, this next sentence, is where I, I think you excel as, as a historian because you could have just stopped that paragraph right there. People have been like, wow, we were pretty amazing. But then you continue with a quote, it is soul destroying to wait day and night for the inevitable disaster, said 68-year-old Matilde Wolf Monkeyberg, wrote to her grown children who were living outside the Reich. This German uh, matron refused to leave her poor burning, destroyed Hamburg uh, town when mass evacuations occurred. What I think you do so well is you state a fact, which is already amazing, and you just reinforced it with a German citizen who was on the ground that that felt those sort of bombings. How, how do you find <laughs> these sources in places like Germany or Switzerland or whatnot to help reinforce these stories? Where do you get those? Yeah, that's the key to the books. Um, it, it just, it, it, it's a simple answer, uh, Tony, it, it's, it's doing the extra nine yards of, of research and researching things that you'd not, at the time, think, you, you might think, well, this, this is wasting time, you know, I got to get on with the story, but it's really interesting stuff. So I, I, I tend to stop myself and, and and file i have a good filing system and i was gonna ask you about that how do you keep track of all these yeah i, I really you know i'm a disorganized person ordinarily as, as my wife will tell you but uh i just got a lecture right before this uh but anyway the um you have to you really have to keep things in, in i don't feel good about a chapter well, so much when I finish it, I feel really good about a chapter when it's organized and ready. I'm ready to write it. When I have it set up in the file drawer exactly the way I want to tell it. Now I'll deviate from that, of course, when I write and and go in different directions. But the settled notion that that gives you the sense of like, I got this. I know what happened, and importantly, I know how to tell the story. There's a way of telling this story that is unique and that is interesting. And I always put on top of the chapter, will the reader turn the next page? And um, got that idea from reading Barbara Tuckman. Wow. So, Ryan, you mentioned this earlier, a bit of foreshadowing. 
little inside baseball here. We've had new authors on our podcast, or we've had people tell us that they would like to write a book someday. And I think what Donald just described there in the last few minutes of that clip would serve those people well, which is you need to do a lot of research. You need to organize your research. According to him, he has to make sure that for each chapter, and it sounds like that's how he works as a chapter at a time, has has the right narrative, has the right story to tell. And I thought, I wonder if there's any other interview that Donald's conducted, maybe he has, where he has shared with the person, that the interviewer, that he writes on the top of the page to remind himself that people have to want to turn to the next page, that he has to make sure it's gripping and compelling. I thought that was cool. I think it's cool too. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I think you and I both hope that that after we've spoken to him, that he'll realize that we're sincere and we're, we, we are interested in what he does and how he does it, you know, and it's not just a, a checkbox for us, you know? Um, so, you know, I was fascinated to hear that he has a filing system where he puts things in order the way he's going to yeah. write it. And, and it makes total sense. You know, I mean, it allows you to organize your thoughts, you know, you, if you know, you've got to have an arc, you've got to have an outline to what the arc of the book is going to be. You know, I mean, that's just, you don't just start out. Well, maybe you do. Heck, I don't know. I've never written a book, <laughs> but maybe, I mean, do you just start out and just wherever you end up is where you end up? I would think not. There's probably a high flyover arc to the story that you're that's that's the outline of your book chapter 20 is going to be about this chapter whatever and then if it changes it changes but it starts out in one way you work with your editor and you figure out how to do this um and then right if you if you're like oh this this chapter is supposed to be about this pilot and this 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 b17 and if you find out well, crap, uh, I didn't realize that about these guys, or that's rather unflattering. Should I put that <laughs> yeah, in there? You yeah. know, I mean, but 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 that's what you would wrestle with. And I find that fascinating yes. to have to because you're it's just like he mentioned looking at the transcriptions from these these uh, meetings that the air commanders would have quarterly or whatever, however, however often that they met. You, that's that's real history. You're reading what these guys said it's not someone's synopsis of what went on at this at this meeting it's word word, word for word verbatim you know things that spats brought up things that that lemay brought up whatever and i think getting down on that level uh, boots on the ground level so to speak uh reading what these guys actually said is is a would, would be very interesting it'd be like finding treasure in a way you know yes it would be. I've never heard it described that way, Ryan. But you and I have both had those experiences. We're doing some research for a show, and this nugget comes up. And we're like, holy crap. I can't wait yes. to say this to Tony. I can't it wait. It is like mining for <laughs> treasure. I had never thought of it that way, but it is. It absolutely is. It is. Wow. Yeah. And so yeah. What, what we just heard there, and Brian, uh, Ryan, you just elucidated that beautifully. I have nothing to add, and I'm such a loudmouth. That's so rare. <laughs> so, I mean, now that was, you just heard from kind of the the fully formed version of Donald Miller, who writes New York Times bestsellers. And this next clip, he's going to eat a little humble pie and talk about the earlier version of himself. 
And you'll hear more about that next week in our final installment with Donald Miller. Uh, Our conversation thus far has taken us on a variety of topics. And in this final of a four-part episode, you're going to hear Donald talk a variety of things, including how his book, Masters of the Air, got selected to be one of the trilogy or part of the trilogy of the Hank Spielberg narrative of World War II. That and much, much more. You're not going to want to miss it. So tune in next week, and we'll see you then. Well, for those who listened to the post-roll from last week's episode, you would have learned that um, someone who we featured on our podcast, Alfred Kramer, someone who we interviewed for the Library of Congress and then featured on our podcast years later, um, has been rediscovered by his family in the sense that uh, Chris's I should say, Alfred's grandson, Chris, uh, his, his daughter, which I guess would be his great-granddaughter for Alfred, was doing an internet search on, um, to research you know, her father, Alfred Kramer, and a bomb group, and stumbled into our podcast on our website and was able to get a bunch of information and connect with us. Well, it happened again. For those of us who, uh, or for those of you who may have listened to the Leo Westerholm podcast series, Uh, Leo was a 101st Airborne trooper who was captured on D-Day and had a horrific experience in POW camps. Well, his granddaughter, Sarah Westerholm, was doing some research and Googling some stuff and uh, stumbled into our website uh, featuring Leo Westerholm on one of our episodes in very much the same way that uh, Chris Kramer's granddaughter did. And we had a chance to connect with Sarah and learn a bit more about Leo Westerholm and, quite frankly, the shock that they had when they found that the internet had a place, a homepage for Leo Westerholm, where we had his photos and his memoir and his YouTube interview and the podcast all available for their family. So tune in for Narrate Edition um, soon, where we'll be able to share that with you guys. We thought it was really Uh, heartfelt, touching, and quite frankly, really satisfying knowing that um, these people who we're featuring are being resurrected by their family as we um, give them an online presence. So take care.